Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. A unique story is told tonight in this episode of a coach that's after 70 or 80 years is remembered not for winning championships or even winning ball games, but for some other unique circumstances. Author Peter Olchek tells us all about his book with his late father-in-law Bill Bell on Football for Fun, the story of Stuart Fergie Ferguson. And Peter comes up in just a moment to tell us all about it. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And welcome to another edition where we get to talk to an author about a great person in football history. And this is really uh, an entertaining one today. I think you're going to be taking on quite a ride uh, like I was as a reader of this fantastic book that's called Football for fun, and it's by Bill Bell and Peter Olchick. And we have Peter here today. Uh, Peter, welcome to the Pigpen. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's a real honor, especially with someone who's such a student of history of the game. So thank you so much. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I read a lot about football. I, you know, I talk to a lot of people that know a lot of things about football, but your book and the stories within it are things that were totally foreign to me. I felt like I was in uh landed on a, a different planet of football and yeah. just learned some great stuff and some great history and very entertaining. And we'll get into more of that in a moment here. But first, uh, we'd like to learn a little bit about you and your co-author, if we could. I think you got some great stories in that before we get to the story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So really kind of the backstory here for the book. Um, my father-in-law, Bill Bell, was a lifelong journalist. Uh, he was born in Buffalo, but he really grew up in Arkansas. So at one of the Bell family reunions, which actually my mother-in-law stopped going to a long time ago, um, but he enjoyed them. Actually, he had an uncle at the time. This was back in 2000, who basically was like, hey, Bill, did you ever hear about this, you know, this guy, this crazy team in the local area? You know, they were running around the country and back in the you know early 40s. And Bill had no, no, what are you talking about? You know, and of course, his journalist ears ramped up. But, um, you know, Bill went home after that. And this was kind of, you know, he was kind of becoming partially retired at the New York Daily News at the time, but did a lot of research at home, realized that, yep, there was this team um, in rural Arkansas that did become famous for a few years with, um, you know, with a guy kind of pulling all the strings. And, he dug in and he started researching and he started writing um, and he came up, you know, basically with for a while, a book about this team that became known as the Marx Brothers of football. But but really, he was becoming more interested in the person behind the team. And he and his agent at the time were looking at the book 
more as a biography rather than a book about a teen. But that's really when uh, health issues sort of started to get into the way. And he wasn't really able to go much further than that. You know, for me at that time, you know, I was uh, I was writing for kids. I was touring schools and we had really never talked about this project, maybe once in passing, you know, but about five years later, truly, I was in Connecticut in my mother-in-law's basement. There was a big box in the basement. And, you know, sometimes you feel compelled to open things. And I did. And in that box were all sorts of spirals and sheets and just journalist, you know, things and, you know, books. And I said to myself, wow, I'm at a moment here where I feel compelled to see if I could pull this off and see what this book is all about. And that that really started me down, you know, this journey to truly um, try to turn this into a full fledged biography with a lot of help along the way. Wow, that's that's a really cool story there. Now, did uh did uh, Mr. Bell, did he have uh, all kinds of, did he have the majority of the research all done for you? or Yeah, so it? really his research and some sample chapters and that kind of thing were very much focused on the Arkansas part of this story. Uh, he was just starting to get into what I would call the earlier years of the coach's life in South Dakota, because um, that really is, this story does come full circle to South Dakota, but just a little bits and nothing at all really in terms of um, from like 1942 on really when Pearl Harbor put um, in an abrupt end to this kind of three years of barnstorming. So I really had to, you know, dig in from the beginning and kind of deconstruct to almost reconstruct and then to see how I could make this into a really impactful you know, thoughtful biography that I thought really would do the story justice. Yeah, that's uh, I think the the backstory that you did, which you, of course, you have chronologically, but uh, makes great sense. You know, we would I would not know about uh, Coach Ferguson. That's uh, that's our subject of this uh, Coach yes. Stuart Ferguson. And I wouldn't know uh, where he was if you would have started at the barnstorming uh, point of it as his coaching. If I didn't know a little bit about him his growing up and his rearing. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit because yeah. he had sort of a, a unique uh, situation in his early family. He, he certainly did. So this is a guy, Stuart Ferguson, um, who was really what was known as a preacher's kid back in the day, a PK, if you will. Um, he was the son of a Methodist minister, a very stern Methodist minister. And, you know, in that household, football was not a thing. You know, football was morally reprehensible. Um, Stuart Ferguson didn't know too much about the game. However, uh, in the fall of 1916, excuse me, um, he was invited to a football game by another preacher's kid, actually. This was in Dakota Wesleyan University. So he actually lived in Mount Vernon, South Dakota, about 10 miles from Mitchell, South Dakota, where Dakota Wesleyan University was, still is. And they went and he very quickly was mesmerized by what he saw, the, the aura of the game. Yes, at that point, the violence of the game, actually, this was someone, you know, who really was, I would call him, him a rebellious teenager at that time. So that kind of fit into the probably the way he was feeling. He came away from that game thinking, OK, I need to convince my Methodist minister father that football can be the way to the life was a pulpit. And he actually kind of bamboozled his dad into signing up at Dakota Wesleyan Academy, the high school at the time, 
really for him to see if he could get much more involved in the game of football. Yeah, I I, I found that uh, you know really a great jumping off point uh, for who uh, Coach Ferguson was. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know if I, bamboozle might be a, a good word to use for his father, but I I looked at it the bigger picture as I got done with the book and I sort of reflected back on the character of this man, and I think he just took the opportunities that were laid before him. He didn't create a lot of his opportunities. He just sort of reacted to them and made the best of them of a lot of times, some bad situations. And I think this is one of them where you, know, you have a father, it almost like reminded me of the movie footloose, you know, where you have the father say, yes. Hey, you know, football's a sin. You're not going to do this. And, you know, we're not going to have this thing. And he just, uh, you know, uses the, the ministry and, uh, you know, being a Christian life to get into football. And I thought that was just such a, a cool little turn that uh, happened in the story with, with him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, back in the day when he was doing, you know, some of his writings, so he had these unpublished memoirs um, and a lot of the content from the book, importantly, to give really a full portrait, you know, we do pull Bill and I, you know, from those memoirs. And one of the things he said that, Listen, at that period of time, it was preaching or teaching. That was really the choices that were given, you know, teenagers at the time. So, you know, we see how he eventually will kind of come closer to the teaching side of things. But really, he was on a football odyssey starting in 1916. And, you know, we can talk more about kind of how, you know, that becomes him both as a player, you know, and eventually, you know, starting to get into coaching. Yeah, it's uh, you know, that that part was important because I think you know his being a player and some of the uh, the teams that he played on, uh, I think it sort of set a tone for expectations maybe for football that uh, maybe if he was on a a much bigger program maybe he wouldn't have set him up for what he did in the future. Which I don't want to touch on too, you know, I don't want to step on the toes of the story here. Yeah, I'm trying to be delicate here. So why don't you go ahead and take us through maybe real briefly through his, his playing days and how he got yeah. into coaching. Yeah. So when he joined Dakota Wesleyan from the academy and then into the university as it became a college, you know, um, there weren't too many men actually on campus at that time because a lot of um, a lot of the student body was actually overseas fighting for World War One. So it was a much smaller group on campus, which actually gave him a little bit more opportunity to to start playing. And he was, maybe we should note that he was a little bit a couple years too young to be able to to go off. Yeah, to World yeah. War he he. So he kind of came in at say 17 years old, which was typically not the age that a college student would be able to play for Dakota Wesleyan, but exceptions were made at that time for he and, and some other folks. And, you know, he was not a big guy. He's 5'7", 135 pounds. You know, he he talked about his football as being more of a spirited player. And he early on, I think the violence kind of helped him be that spirited player. But over the course, I would say, of a few years, he did have his moments. And, um, you know, he particularly liked trying to see how could football add a little bit to his stardom, if you will. And there was a particularly a game which really changed his trajectory at Dakota Wesleyan, where he decided that he was going to break the record for the longest drop kick in college football history. So a little bit of the backstory there, um, in 1915, there was a Dakota Wesleyan player 
whose um, whose name is Mark Payne. Mark Payne kicked a 63-yard dropkick field goal. That record still stands. Everybody knew about this record. And as Stuart Ferguson got into Dakota Wesleyan, he became somewhat obsessed with actually breaking this record. Not only with breaking the record, but breaking it at the exact same location that the record took place in Aberdeen, South Dakota. <laughs> well, that moment came in 1919. So it happens to be the uh, where Dakota Wesleyan had a road game in Aberdeen. At this point, Stuart Ferguson is a backup end. He somehow convinced another person, this time his coach, to actually play quarterback for that game. You know, what are you doing? Why are we doing this? As a coach, you know, this is this is important for me for this game. He let him do it. And he goes through in all this detail about trying to set up this drop kick. It's it's absolutely this spectacular, dramatic effort that ends in complete failure. Uh, he, you know, he tries to do it from 70 yards. He said, I think he said people really remember even numbers. So that was important to him to put it on the 30 yard line. He barely he, he dropped the ball, barely got it off. And he said, Jesus wept, and and so did I. <laughs> that was his that was his kind of moment. This is who we're dealing with as a character, you know, as he kind of goes more into his later years playing college ball. Yeah, that that was uh, I thought that was a spectacular story, and you know, the build up to it, you know, I, I was sitting there, like you said, I, you know, rooting for him. He's like, oh, he's going to make this, you know, this is he's going to make it. And he like utterly fails, and you're like going, wow, I, you know, that I can relate to that. You know, I've had some things uh, happen like that in my life, you know, and I'm sure you know other readers were as, as well. So yeah, that was that was great. So that sort of you know leads him along his playing days and sort of guides him in. You now, was his ambition though wasn't to be a football coach though it was more of a, a being a teaching profession like you said yeah so preacher so, yeah so basically as we kind of um you know he lost his father in 1917 and after that point in time he was really in and out of school at Dakota Wesleyan he had to uh work for jobs when he was in school he wasn't exactly the model um Methodist student so he did graduate eventually in 1924. And at that point, he had a decision to make. You know, he definitely did not want to go down the preacher path. And the only job application that was really out there was for a coaching position that he heard just a little bit about down south in Louisiana. And that actually sent him down his initial uh, assistant coaching path if you will. And it started out in Dry Creek, Louisiana, which was not what he where he thought he was going. He thought he was actually going to a bigger part of uh, Ritter, Louisiana, actually. And the, the superintendent of the school at the time had to convince him to take this job. And not only was he concerned about going to coach in kind of a swampy community, this school did not have football. He came in to be the basketball coach. So already he was starting off completely not on the foot or where his passions were and his coaching kind of goes from there. He has that, takes that teaching job and uh, ends up, you know, getting snookered in the coach, but that wasn't the only time he was sort of uh, bamboozled. As you said earlier, he himself got bamboozled into do, taking a coaching position. He really didn't want. Yeah. Well, the, before, before that, the, let me just say that, his real um his experience in louisiana 
he was actually pretty content during this period of time. You know, he he ended up um, he went from Dry Creek. He ended up in Lake Charles, a pretty hot football area with lots of talented players. And an opportunity opened up at, at Bolton High School, which was a little bit more not as athletic. You know, the, the school was a little bit more about the um, the academics and a healthy relationship between um, sort of ath- athletics and sports. But he actually got, in 1929, he got a telegram, surprisingly, very surprisingly, from Dakota Wesleyan University to come back. And this was, he was 29 years old at the time, and they invited him back to be the athletic director and head coach. And in his mind, completely surprising because he was not the model student while he was there. As I said, you know, earlier, he was in and out of, of school and, you know, pushed sort of the the Methodist um, behaviors, if you will, while he was in school. But on the other hand, he was also nominated to be a Rhodes Scholar while he was there at the school. So it's a very interesting dynamic. But how could he say no? So he actually said yes. And in 1929, you know, was back on campus, quite scared to be back on campus, actually. So, you know, during that period, you know, during that period of time, he really came in as someone with a mandate to win, because the coach that had been there the last couple of years had just been dismissed. And the new the president at the time, President Rodman, basically told Coach Ferguson that this job is a challenge. And I think Coach Ferguson, there's a great expression that he used um, to talk about this. He said, this is of President Rodman. President Rodman wasted no time putting Ferguson on guard, telling him his new job was a challenge, a favorite expression of Methodist, Ferguson noted, meaning you either produce miracles or get the hell out. So immediately he is on guard um, at Dakota Wesleyan. And we can talk a little bit more about kind of how his philosophies of football start to change during this period of time, which I think is, you know, is is central to his his development and and how he goes down the road um, to his road to fame, if you will. Yeah, let's talk about that. While he's at Dakota Wesleyan, you know, he starts out um, successful. The team is kind of co-champions in 1929. But by 1931, it, he's already thinking bigger about Dakota Wesleyan. He sent his team to LSU in 1930. Dakota Wesleyan had never traveled to that type of place. His friend was the coach of LSU. 1931, all of a sudden, he finds himself, he's, he talks his way into showing up at the White House. His team is on the way to two games in West Virginia. And in, you know, in that October, they are taking pictures with Herbert Hoover at the White House. So you start to see that we have a, a coach here who is thinking about the celebrity, the sports, um, and the fame all together. And this is what he's becoming, you know, a little bit more consumed with as he goes through his Dakota Wesleyan time. Now, now wasn't he also getting pushed by some of his superiors at, at the, the college too, to try to put them the the town and the school on the map? To... You know, yeah, the the school really at that time basketball was this was the sport where all the winning took place but Dakota Wesleyan at that time football was really what people considered important so it was an interesting dynamic they were able to fill up the world's only porn palace in Mitchell for home games for basketball led by a very talented player 
player named Jack Byer, who's the first thousand point scorer <clears throat> in Dakota Wesleyan history. But for for Coach Ferguson, he knew that basketball wasn't going to be the thing that would help continue um, his kind of rise to fame at Dakota Wesleyan. And when he started to think about football a little bit differently, when he wasn't as into the violence of the game, when he wasn't as into recruiting heavily to get new players, his standing at the school started to change. And in his mind, going up to now 1933, he really thought he was coaching for his job in the final game in 1933 against their rivalry at the time, Yankton, they lost that game. And, um, you know, events soon came up where in the spring of that year, it was really track, if you can believe it, that his team was considered academically ineligible. And, uh, and that set him off a little bit. He wrote a personal, he wrote a letter to the newspaper saying that he couldn't believe it. He regretted it immediately. And, and then soon he was, you know, on his way to leave Dakota Wesleyan to start up in Arkansas in um, in a very new in a very new um, opportunity. Yeah, I, I thought that was uh, real. You know, you know, the school really didn't even tell him, "Hey, you're out." He just sort of assumed that is what I I took from the book. Yeah, he sort of left on his own before he got canned, I guess. It was an uncomfortable back and forth with him, kind of going to the paper and regretting it. So I think he felt like, you know, it was time for a new start. And really, there was only one opportunity. And again, that was going back down south where he was going to start up in Arkansas. Yeah, I, I think of put it in a football analogy. He got the fourth and long. And he punted on on, on that. Yeah, so, no, definitely. <laughs> start a new series. So, OK, so let's let's talk a little bit about Arkansas and uh, what, what happened from there. When he came in in 1934, his team didn't win a game. He was in the, uh, it's called Arkansas A&M in rural Monticello, um, southeast corner of the state. And after that season, the president at the time basically got the entire town together. So this is a, you know, this is a small community saying, do we want to keep this football coach? And it was actually in kind of more of a boisterous town hall scenario with feet stomping. And the answer was no. So all of a sudden, just one year later, he is now not the football coach, but he did stay on as a history teacher. These are still depressionary times. And actually, from 1934, you know, through 1937, he was a pretty content history teacher. However, football at Arkansas A&M started to change. They brought in a coach who was all about the winning, but he also brought in tough players. He brought in players, you know, that were um, sort of play for pay. And in Stuart Ferguson's mind, you know, these were players that he considered were tramp players that just went from school to school um, playing for money and room and board and, and everything along with it. By 1938, the reputation of this of football at the school had been diminished. And the president at the time wanted to put an end to this type of football play. And his real idea to turn things around was Coach Stuart Ferguson. So the question is why? And there were a few reasons. He he wouldn't have to pay another salary to Stuart Ferguson, who was already the history teacher at the time. He thought that maybe um, Stuart would be interested in kind of having another shot as a coach with the way things had um, had ended in that first year in 1934. 
And basically, he wanted to keep football alive because of the cachet that football brings to a small school. So for all those reasons, there was an incredible um, negotiation, if you will, where he sent his business manager down to LSU, where Stuart Ferguson you know, studied during the summers and also did some teaching and somehow convinced him to be a coach. I'll put that in air quotes, a coach where he wouldn't have to win ever. He wouldn't be told um, what to do with the team. He basically had carte blanche to run these this team however he thought fit. So at this point, you know, we used that term bamboozled before. Stuart Ferguson eventually, he said, put that on paper and on the back of an envelope, those three points were put on paper and he signed it. <laughs> All of a sudden, Stuart Ferguson is coaching again and he did feel um, a bit slickered back into coaching, I believe is how he put it in his memoirs. But by the same token, he also felt that now he was doing something on his terms. So he was he was ready to take on this new chapter. And somewhere across the country, there's coaches now pulling their contracts out and look at flipping on the back to see if they have any of those contingencies on there. So. Yes, I'm pretty sure in today's college football <laughs> culture, this is this is a non-starter, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I thought that that was great. So, I mean, at that point, you know, he felt that he got you know snookered or you know taken advantage of. Uh, by the, uh, the the business manager from the score, whoever the, the gentleman was. But really, if if you look back and reflect, he actually probably got the better of the deal and uh, for for what he ended up doing with it. You know, so. absolutely. You know, at this point, he had really been coming. Um, he had been becoming a bit of a scholar in terms of the world of physical education and the and the role that physical education could play in terms of the overall um, collegiate experience. So for him, this was an opportunity to, to start working on his principles a little bit. And that football could really just be a game within physical education. And physical education would be just part of the overall college experience. So that is kind of where things started in 1938. And it really, in that first year, um, they played a pretty typical schedule. They did take um, one trip down to New Orleans at the end because Stuart Ferguson loved New Orleans um, and it was kind of a treat to his team. But it was really the next year where he started putting things in print about um, what football for fun could be and his his thoughts on um on changing his, you know, on sort of his growing philosophy of of football in in college and starting to travel. We'll be back with more from this interview in just a moment right after this. The memorable moments were many. Franco Harris's immaculate reception, Roger Staubach's Hail Mary. But the decade's greatest teams were defined by defense. Author Michael McCambridge. Joe Zagorski's podcast, Pro Football in the 1970s, pays homage to a time when defense ruled the gridiron. Soundtrack provided by Horst Hoffman of Filmmusic.io. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. This is Greg Tranter, co-author of the Buffalo Bills, an illustrated timeline of a storied team book. And you are listening 
to the Pigskin Dispatch podcast. And now we return to our interview with our special guest. Like right before he gets to the football for fun philosophy, I guess a lot of F astounding uh, words. Yes. There. Uh, but he had, he had some decent football innovation X's and O's though, too. And in particular one play uh, that's kind of interesting that he sort of kept going back to through a lot of his career. Maybe you could tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So in terms of his, in terms of his overall um, X's and O's on football, you know, he basically early on, he was definitely influenced uh, as an assistant coach in the South where he was definitely interested by the, the faster play laterals, the passing game, um, things that were not as typical in terms of more of the power game that was, you know, popular at the time. Well, he, he started with something that he had put in terms that was called the Louisiana line divide. He put that, you know, that's what he put out there while he was still at Dakota Wesleyan. And basically that was kind of having an unbalanced line, having some movement before the snap where all of a sudden you would go from, let's say, two offensive linemen on one side and four on the other to just one on one side and five on the other. And eventually, while he was at Arkansas, he started call, renaming it and he called it the swinging gate. And basically, you know, he spent, he wrote an article in 1936 to a magazine where he went into detail about how this swinging gate could work. And the general idea was that you would now pivot as a gate to create uh, more deception and more room for ball carriers to get through. For him, he used to say that it was really just to um, to get short yardage situations, uh, to move the chains, if you will, especially when he was playing against um, bigger, stronger, tougher teams. But during his time in Arkansas, the swinging gate really was just left uh, most of the times with a pile of bodies, you know, all together. And it really didn't actually have the success rate that he was looking that he was looking forward to. But um, but that doesn't mean that he still wasn't a real football mind because his whole idea about the open game um, and heavy passing would start to um, manifest itself in his uh, in his Arkansas team starting in 1939. A really cool way that it did come in with the passing game and it sort of really I'm I'm not sure how much he introduced it to his players or how much they did it but I guess before we get to that maybe you ought to tell us uh you know his uh, you call it the epiphany he had of yes. this football for fun and tell us a little bit about that that philosophy. Yeah, so basically in the fall of 1939, he was at a crossroads where he said, okay, you know, I have, um, I am not being told that I need to win, but, but still, what can I do to actually bring some entertainment, you know, for, um, for this team, because he had started to think about a bigger schedule, you know, um, 11 games and not nine and traveling way beyond the state of Louisiana. He was starting to schedule games up in, you know, up in Philadelphia and up into the East Coast. So really, he wasn't sure what football for fun truly meant at that point. But I would say that with the benefit of one of his players, 
which was his name was Annie Robinson, um, little Annie, he was called. And he was a, a cheerleader in high school, but he was also a tremendous athlete. He, he played he played competitive baseball. He was a boxer as well. And when little Annie Robinson got into their first game, you know, truly when they were traveling up to Philadelphia in 1939, he started passing the ball all over the yard, you know, sometimes forward, sometimes backwards. And the the press during that game was they didn't know what they were really watching, but they were enamored with this. And they even asked Coach Ferguson. So, you know, how do you, you organize where players play? Can I see lineups beforehand? And he said, no, we don't really have set lineups. We let the players decide what makes most sense in terms of the gameplay. And that was the slow beginnings of sometimes organically, sometimes not organically, about how playing for fun would start to gravitate towards being um, branded as the Marx Brothers of football, which was by a Cleveland sports writer later in that year in 1939. Yeah, I, I thought that was, uh, you know, entertaining and a kind of a, a neat little uh, comparison, you know, to the, the, of course, the comedy troupe of the Marx Brothers and what, what uh, you know, Coach uh, Ferguson's team was doing, the the uh, the Bull Weevils was their nickname. And, A&M uh, Bull Weevils, yes. Yeah, so they, they were, you had them being called the Wandering Weevils as uh, sort of right. their, their stage name. Yeah, so the Marx Brothers of football, they were coined that first, but I would, in 1940, um the real turning point where they became known as the wandering bull weevils and then the wandering weevils, there was a, there was a big game in Hershey, Pennsylvania in 1940 where they had traveled and coach Ferguson actually was pretty concerned because he got a phone call from Collier's magazine asking whether they could send a photographer to both watch them play and travel with the team for a little bit. And he said yes, of course, but also he didn't know what that meant. But the experience in Hershey could not have gone better. The players were treated um, to, you know, to candy gift boxes and to into the local movie theaters. And they traveled around looking at the, you know, the Hershey decorated lamps. And he called them, I believe Coach Ferguson called them the really sweet chocolate people um, of his experience in Hershey. But that that experience would soon become on uh, a feature in Collier's magazine later in that year in 1940. And that's when he basically said, you know, we're becoming famous. And uh, that was really, I would say, the beginning of them being coined the Wandering Weevils and, you know, being uh, sought out during their travels. Yeah, just a a side note on that. You know, I'm I'm from Pennsylvania, and I was a high school football official for PIAA uh, for 27 years. And the state championship games for high school used to be played in Hershey at Hershey Stadium, which is right adjacent to the the chocolate factory that we all know. And they are still hospitable down there. At least when I was down there 10 years ago, still yes. hospitable in candy boxes. And you know, hey, here's you know. Uh, peanut butter uh you know the uh Reese's Pieces in your locker room and things like that they, they're still hospitable so Hershey still does a great job of entertaining uh football teams coming in and, of and course teams, of course so, so. <laughs> but uh yeah so that was that was kind of a uh, a neat thing that he did and you know you, you sit there and think about this where 
he just sort of let the players choose who is going out on the field, where they're going to play, uh, you know, what plays they're going to run. And, but it, it didn't lead to a lot of success in the wins column though for them, but it did give no, them a lot of fame. No, absolutely not. You know um, of course, you know, he would, he would say later on that he was not anti-winning, but he always valued um, sportsmanship and spirit over results on the scoreboard. Of course, this took it to the extreme because they were really looked upon to provide entertainment. You know, so often the players of that particular squad, there was, you know, 1939, 1940, and then 1941, which, which was truly the worst team of the bunch talent wise. But they would often take their um, their cues, let's say, from the weather. If it was raining during a game, all of a sudden they're ditching their shoes. They're bringing out the umbrellas. They're calling cadences and quack noises. Um the uh the one time they actually had one of their players in a particularly muddy rainy weather came out onto the field in tuxedo in top hat and on the first play of the game he was given the football and what did he do he slid face first onto the ground <laughs> so it wasn't necessarily planned in terms of what was going to happen on that given day but they took their cues from both the other team and and the game situation itself. Um, and every now and then they played it straight as well. And sometimes they were under pressure to do so potentially by another coach. Um, I will say that there was one really um, important game in 1940 when he returned to South Dakota for the first time. And this was in Rapid City, South Dakota. And at this point, um, you know, we talked about how he left Dakota Wesleyan in, in a tough situation and didn't feel good about the way that he left things there. So when he returned to South Dakota, he did not want to play the fool in that game. He had former players who were now coaches in the area. And, you know, he and, and the newspapers basically said, well, here comes little Fergie. So already there was this expectation of a team that was providing lots of entertainment. And what would they do? However... He called this day basically um, the greatest football game that he'd ever been part of. And his student assistant, whose name is uh, J.P. Leverett, was a fascinating guy. He did not want anything to do with the violence of the game. He was also a tremendous athlete. He was a bodybuilding enthusiast. And he was a star um, acrobat and gymnast. And on the second play of the game, their quarterback at the time throws this ball up. Um, J.P. Leverett is actually playing receiver during this moment. Goes way up in the air. Three defenders are ready to pick it off. J.P. Leverett reverses course, comes back, jumps up in the air, snares the ball, and starts um, powering right to the end zone unabated. Puts the football between his legs and actually somersaults his way into the end zone and then does a bit of an encore after he scores. <laughs> the game ends 26 to 6. Stuart Ferguson calls this the best football play uh, he's ever seen. So he wasn't one to shy away, um, you know, from the uh, from exaggeration and the, and the such. And it was a uh, that was the atypical moment. That was the only road game that the Wandering Weevils won in three years. The only other two games that they won were home games against a junior college during homecoming to kind of provide a little bit of um, of joy to to the local crowd. 
Yeah, that, that had to be something to to watch. And I'm almost picturing, and maybe it's uh, wrong because, like you said, it's not staged, but I'm almost picturing almost like a Harlem Globetrotters type uh, college football team is what I'm, because they had they did have some skits that they repeated. I yes, believe. absolutely. No, that, it's a great comparison. And, the, you know, the Globetrotters at the time were actually traveling as, as well. There were two different teams. And um, later on, the, the Deadwood group actually got to meet the Western version of the Harlem Globetrotters, which was just, you know, a real treat. But it's an apt comparison because I think trying to find the sweet spot of not being completely scripted but also trying new things and seeing what worked well and what entertained and what didn't. And then you had, you had different players that were involved because you had, you know, three different years. So you had different personalities and different um, talents, but it, it typically started with, you know, who was at that quarterback position and then who were the most um, wild personalities that had no problems with sort of going big and trying new things on the field. You almost have to wonder, you know, if you're the opposing team, because I'm, they they would have to be in on some of it. Because I would, I I know football players of all eras, and a lot of them, you know, they they're, you know, they have one drive, and that's to win a game, and it's to hit somebody. And if somebody's doing somersaults with a, a football, uh, I can just see one of these uh, these, these guys, you know, just t- taking advantage of the situation of the vulnerability of of the athlete. Absolutely. There was a handful of times and it was generally driven by the head coach of the other team when the head coach wanted nothing to do with the with the funny stuff. Um, And that was sometimes when actually there were, you know, significant injuries that occurred during the game. Um, It happened to its most extreme example. It happened in 1941, where the team was um, was traveling to to Pennsylvania and the head coach at the time, who was a former player, said up front, you guys can do whatever you want. You can borrow some of our uniforms, no problem. And they thought they were walking into um, a really good experience. But once the game started, it was completely the opposite. Uh, they lost 67 to zero in a game where the uh, the opposing team played tough and violent. And Coach Ferguson talked about slugging and the like. And wanted to pull his team off the field and went to the um, to the officials to do that. But he basically tried to protect his team during the game and got through it. And there were a few situations like that. So, of course, the dynamic wasn't always perfect between, um, you know, having the great straight man, if you will, on the other side. Yeah. I, but one of the things that you just reminded me of that I, I want to touch on and uh, it just goes to the character of Coach Ferguson. His, uh, you know, his uh, traveling and barnstorming and you know the away games that he did, that he sort of made a list of his favorite places, uh, both to eat at and to stay at, and uh, maybe touch on a few of those because I thought that was quite entertaining. Yeah, he he talked about this list where he kind of had his good list and his bad list. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't something that he, you know, had ahead of time. It was just depends upon the travels. So basically, areas on the good list would be um, places that were very hospitable or provided charm, you know. So um, he loved going to New Orleans. Um, He loved sometimes just a meal by a very friendly waitress that gave extra helpings to the team. Because remember, as much as it sounds like that he had no concerns whatsoever, he didn't have to win, 
he was always concerned about the health and the well-being of his players. They were in a 1934 rickety bus that had a tough time getting from point A to point B and needed to be fixed quite a bit. Um, Which was and, almost uh, part of the team or in the family. <laughs> yeah, they called it. They called it the green dog affectionately. Um, and food was always an issue because budget wise, you know, he he played generally for guarantees, which were usually five hundred dollars. Sometimes he hoped for more, depending on, as a percentage of the gate. But often this was a tired team doing lots of long travel. So when he wasn't treated well in a particular place or he felt as though um, that he was being taken advantage of, if you will, you know, that is when he put a place on his on his bad list. But, you know, overall, he always just looked for fairness in people. And and that carried over, I think, throughout throughout his life. He you know, there was I would say the biggest example on the unfairness side was when they went to Nevada. So coming out of their stay in Los Angeles, where they had a terrific um, visit, very fun stay, seeing the um, taking tours of the local theater, um, etc. They went to Nevada. And when they got there in the local hotel, uh, they were basically given um, they were basically given a contract which said that they were responsible for paying um, local medical bills in case they needed, you know, ho- you know, hospital work or and other things on that um, on the list that were taking away from the five hundred dollar guarantee that he thought he would be getting, and he actually thought that he'd be getting a percentage of the gate because they had about forty five hundred people at that game. So that was a situation where you know, something didn't sit right with him and it, and it stayed with him throughout the rest of his life. You know, something like the situation at Nevada. Yeah. That's uh, I, I, the one that comes up to my mind is he went, they went to the one restaurant where all the players couldn't sit in the one room. The restaurant was sort of split in two. And I think there was a sort of a fancy side and a, a normal yes. side and he saw the prices. And I think he said, okay, guys, we can't, we can't stay here. Let's, let's go out. But they wanted to use the restroom and the, the owner didn't take too kind to that. And he got put on the naughty list, or I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was in, I think, I think that was in Jackson, um, you know, and, uh, and that would be an example where, um, where he thought he, you know, um, that just that somebody wasn't being fair, but, you know, he also on the, on the positive list, you know, in, uh, in LA, they had another waitress who basically, you know, said, um, he thought they all could sit at the counter, but they basically said, no, sit at the main area. We'll give you extra helpings. And the waitress said that if the manager has a problem, tell him to put it on my tab. So things like that. Also a reason why Ferguson said, if you ever want to marry well, marry a waitress. And I love hmm. seeing that line because it speaks to kind of his character about being treated respectfully. Yeah, I, I thought that was a real good point of his character. I'm glad you brought that up. So let's uh, go, you know, we have different phases of Coach Ferguson's coaching yes. career. So he gets out of the the traveling, uh, you know, barnstorming, having fun uh, type to get in a little bit different style of coaching that maybe we're f- more familiar with with coaching. And maybe you could uh, touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So um, so basically he transitions, you know, with the um, 
you know, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Stuart Ferguson transitions after a couple of years um, down south in Louisiana, actually teaching in a flight school, if you can believe it, you know, which was incredible to read about and, and surprising. But he resurfaces um, in Deadwood in South Dakota. There was an opportunity for um, a new position in 1944, both for a head coach as well as an English teacher. And at this time, Stuart Ferguson had recently been married in 1940 to a woman named Edna McAdams, who also happened to be his uh, a student in Arkansas and was 20 years younger. Um, but they, um, you know, they became a a couple and they really started their life together in in South Dakota in 1944. And the Deadwood community was nothing like he had experienced in his earlier football stops. This was a community that um, that winning was nice, but it wasn't paramount. But it allowed him to kind of get back into real coaching. And he often said that, you know, at Deadwood, I still had the same principles. I still, you know, enjoyed playing for fun, but sans the circus. So really, this started becoming um, his first experience in high school football. And he started to leave a really deep imprint on the Deadwood community, um, especially with, you know, players that he now started to have for for multiple years and that he could see grow, you know, from ninth grade in, into 12th grade. And for me, it was incredible to be um, with a with a lot of help to actually be able to interview many of these players back in 2014 who were both former players and, and sometimes students and to talk about their experiences at Deadwood with Fergie and to the person that he was. Um, and we could talk about, you know, some of those players if you want, but that's when I really saw the book take shape in terms of his interaction uh, within the Deadwood community. You know, so one of the early players that, um, that Fergie at this point, and that's what he was really known at um, in Deadwood, he really became known at, as Fergie in that community, was a player named Sheldon Jacobs. Um, Sheldon Jacobs actually was really more of a musician than any type of an athlete. Um, you know, he he ran a little bit of track, but basically Sheldon Jacobs wanted to try out for football in his senior year. And he was a very small kid and um, he tried out, didn't make the team at first. But during the year, Stuart Ferguson or Fergie was so enamored with the um, the effort that he put in that this is what he did. Towards the end of the season, Ferguson called his number and sent him in. And a lifetime later, a laughing Jacob still remembered the day. He put me in for one or two plays. It was just an act of kindness, you know, so I could say, yeah, I played football for Deadwood. I loved hearing that one. And then Sheldon added one more little anecdote from the spring. So he really was pretty fast and he was a track guy. So this is what he talked about in terms of what Ferguson did for him more on the mental side of sports. In the spring, Sheldon showed up for track and received a critical lift from Fergie. The thing that sticks in my mind was a very important thing in my life, recalled Jacobs. He taught me how to psych up. Basically, it's mental conditioning. Part of it is convincing yourself you can win. And I learned that and I practiced it. And in some respects, it has been with me my entire life. Hmm. So... I loved hearing that. 
And then there are other stories, you know, more on the football side. Yeah, th- those are some great testaments to a great uh, influential person. If he, you know, not only while he's in the the games uh, playing as a player, but to take that into your life experience beyond that, that's uh, quite an impactful person. Yeah, you could tell as he was going through his time at Deadwood that he was so concerned about a player's physical and mental well-being, and that always came first. And yes, um, the winning actually did follow, ironically. Um, They had a very special season, you know, um, in 1953. But really, he he left a deep imprint on players. Most of the time, players would say that Fergie spoke before practices and after practices. And he didn't speak loudly. He spoke softly. But when he did speak, he had a captive audience. And those were the times when you kind of heard what was important to him about the game of football, what was important to him about how they went about the the effort. And that was where you saw him start to not only leave an imprint in Deadwood, but really find home. Because in addition to he and his wife, Edna, building a, a home in Deadwood, they had a son who was born as Stuart Jr., who became known as Freddie. And the relationship with Stuart Ferguson and his son, Freddie, was very special. And it was great to learn more about that um, and see some of the pictures in terms of how, you know, how the father-son relationship developed and how Freddie became kind of a super fan of the Bears and would throw on the jersey when he was six or seven years old and was basically just um, a mascot, if you will, for the team. But this was really his experience in Deadwood over the 11 and a half years that he was there. Yeah, that's uh, tr- tremendous. And I'm glad that uh, you know, Coach finally got that winning season that sort of eluded him and, uh, you know, the sort of the lovable loser uh, moniker sort of escapes him at that point, which so I'm glad to, to hear that part of it. Yeah, it was uh, 1953 was, um, you know, it's fun when you actually go back to the newspapers for games that you didn't see, but you tried to actually figure out a way to see the game. So you get as much of the content as possible. And then really to try to make the play-by-play, if you will, um, come to life as if you had just been watching game footage. And, you know, I think that comes through really nicely um, in the book and particularly in some of those games in 1953, particularly one against Sturgis High School, which was a, a pretty serious um, athletic talent at the time and 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 a rival. Um, but yes, and... And I would just add that the other part of his this whole experience in Deadwood was really the experience of Deadwood and Lead, which we didn't get a chance to talk about yet. But just real quickly, Lead and Deadwood was big brother and little brother, and it was and it was that way because the all of the money um, came from Lead, came from Homestake Mine, which was sort of above the gulch, and Deadwood was really on the bottom in the valley, so. The community of Deadwood and the community of Lead were blood rivals. And watching that dynamic play out during his time in Deadwood was terrific. And trust me, the the players felt very strongly about the one game that they wanted to win more than any other, of course, was beating Lead. Yeah, it's, uh, I think every school has a rival like that. But you know, one that sort of got the advantage uh, more often you know, with Lead it had to be, you know, it's sweet to victory when you can get a, a chance to to play with them and uh, on par with them or even beat them. So 
Yeah, they had won about maybe two games um, in the whole rivalries, which started in 1903 before Stuart Ferguson came on board in 44. But then af- after they finally got a win in 1945, any year it was a toss-up game. So it really did become much more on even footing. And some of those games were were absolutely spectacular, often in very brutal weather, which was just also an interesting dynamic to see how that impacted some of these classic games. Yeah, very, very well done. Uh, now, I think that, uh, you know, somewhere uh, your father-in-law is uh, looking down and I think he's, <laughs> you know, probably you probably feel that uh, warm uh, hand on your back, you know, patting you on the back. Cause I think you did a great job and I, you know, he has to be proud of you. I don't know the man, but he has to be proud of the story uh, and you taking the information that he, you know, so diligently put together and collected in a box and probably didn't even know he was saving it to, for you probably assumed he was going to do it himself. And unfortunately he wasn't able to, but uh you know, great, great job on this to, to pick up the pieces and put this together so, and uh, give him the credit is due to him, too. So well done. No, I appreciate it. It's truly a labor of love effort with a heavy emphasis on the labor part to actually um, bring this to make this happen. You know, and I would say that when I was working on the acknowledgments um, and I wanted to think about the things I wanted to say about Bill, I found some incredible nuggets in the um, in actually in the basement in Connecticut in my mother-in-law's basement. And I just wanted to share uh, a few things that I thought the audience might like to learn a little bit more about the um, the journalist Bill Bell. So first of all, on marriage, one with a little bit of humor. I never knew what true happiness was until I got married. And then it was too late. (laughs) I'm starting up in journalism. And just like the old joke goes. I got into journalism because I was too lazy to work and too scared to steal on heroes. The real heroes are ordinary men and women who do extraordinary things. And one final one, this one's just a tad longer and please excuse the Connecticut to New York uh, commuting bias on curiosity. There's a story about the tourist who wants to take Metro North to Westport. The ticket agent says local or express. The tourist says, what's the difference? With Express, you save six minutes. And the tourist says, what do people do with the six minutes they save? Good question. And I've got a suggestion. Fill those six minutes, six hours, six days, weeks, months, whatever, with the great gift of curiosity. To me, this is the gift that keeps us all open to new possibilities and fresh perspectives and fully engaged participation in everything happening around you. It's what made Alexander Fleming wonder about mold in a lab dish made Thomas Edison wonder about the glow in a filament, and made Isaac Newton wonder about the speed of the fall of an apple from a tree. Curiosity involves a sacred journey, what the theologians and mystics call a pilgrimage, living one moment to the next in wonder, hope, maybe fear, and with luck, great anticipation. I really loved coming across that one. Yeah, I mean, all of them were tremendous, but yeah, especially that last one, that's that's very, uh, you know, very thoughtful and <laughs> very deep. So you could uh, put that on a lot of levels. So great, great job on that. And w- let's g- give the title of the book and where folks can get a copy of it at. Yeah, sure. So the title of the book is um, Football for Fun, the story of Coach Stuart Fergie Ferguson. Just came out a few weeks ago. So this is all very new. Um, it's available Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, also the publisher's website. SDHS Press, uh, the South Dakota Historical Society Press. 
And I'll also add that there's lots of good stuff on um, on a website in terms of if you want to learn more content about the book, learn a little bit more about Bill or just some bonus content, you can also jump over to peterolchik.com and, and see some more good stuff. Well, Peter, we really thank you for for writing this book and collecting this great story of a uh, you know a, a great football coach that we've most of us have never heard of. You know, I know I haven't, and uh, just to hear his story and hear a different angle of football that happened, you know, some 70, 80 years ago for the most part and and beyond, and uh, just some great stories and some some excellent uh, journalism by by you and your father in law to uh, tell this story and. Uh, hope everybody gets a copy of it. You sell lots of books and uh, Stuart Ferguson becomes a household name here someday soon. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate being on the show. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.